Welcome, everyone, to Episode 79, Stem Cells and Spinal Injury. I'm Dr. Kiki, here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen? Isn't it obvious I'm doing? Hi. Isn't it obvious, Kiki? I mean, look at the date. Look at the newspaper. I'm not going to get into it. I don't even want to say the name. <laughs> Although it's inevitable, I'm a little bit bummed out, but I'm also so glad it's over and I want to move forward. Yeah, I think it's time for a lot of moving forward. You know, everyone make, I don't know, we've, we've discussed things in the past. We had election lead up. Now it's post-election and it's time for more action. Keep moving forward into the future. Hatch your plans. Try not to choke on your tea. It's going to be tough. not going to lie. <laughs> You have a will? I do. I got a will on Wednesday. I didn't have a will. Seriously? <laughs> yeah. I, just, I dealt with all my finances, talked to my planner about the, wow. the hundreds of dollars I have in the bank. Yep. I'm making plans, I'm making contingency plans. You really are planning for the future. Wow. All right. Let's have a day of action, everybody. Right? Let's do it. Yeah. All right. Okay, let's get down to the stem cell business. Make sure, everyone, that you engage with us on all of our channels. The easiest way to do that is by going to stemcellchannels.com, where you can easily access all of our stem cell tools, just like signing up for our newsletter. If you sign up for the newsletter, we're going to email you when a new show is released, and that's going to contain all of the links to the papers we discuss, as well as a detailed show summary going to make your life a lot easier when you head for the science news area. What's going on in the science news? We tell you. You can also sign up for our stem cell forum. We've created the first forum for all things stem cells called Stem Cell Chat. Go sign up for free and join the conversation. Chat with fellow stem cellers, stem cell researchers, the people who stem cell, and talk with them. And of course, you can follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. All right, we've got a great show today. Our guest for episode 79 is Dr. Alpa Mahuvakar Trevetti, a molecular biologist in the Department of Neurosurgery at the University of California, San Francisco. Alpa and her team have recently published a paper on generating neural cells from stem cells to help pain and bladder function after spinal cord injury. And we are going to talk to her all about this. But first, it's time for the roundup. You ready for it? Yep. Let's get down to business with the roundup. Great show. And then, you know, who knows what's going to happen? <laughs> who knows? Anything goes in this new world. Like we ranted about last week, I'm not making any predictions about how it's going to go. <laughs> yeah, I made a lot of predictions and I feel like a fool. So I don't know. All I'm just saying, I think right now we're going to talk about some science news. That's all I can say for certain. We are. But first, science and politics, because that's what's on the top of most people's minds at the moment. What does Trump mean for science in the United States as we move into the president-elect's term that begins in January. So according to the BBC, Trump, before the election, did not express many views about science and innovation while he was on the campaign trail. But there are some clues that he has given over the months that he was campaigning. So 
people have been really talking about their concerns about the future of the U.S. research community, how much funding it's going to get, whether or not different regulations are going to be passed or ignored, and what's going to happen. So before the election, the nonprofit organization Science Debate, who we spoke with Mr. Halpern about that, Michael Halpern, about his work on Science Debate, they asked the main candidates their positions on different scientific points and... Trump said that he has a vision for innovation in the country, and he says, quote, innovation has always been one of the great byproducts of free market systems. Entrepreneurs have always found entries into markets by giving consumers more options for the products they desire. So he is espousing his business community, businessman beliefs in that kind of a comment. So really relying on free markets to drive innovation here. But what does that mean for basic research, fundamental science, and not the direct or applied research, which a lot of funding has been going toward in recent years? And so basic research isn't necessarily driven by commercial considerations where the free market would be involved. And so there are concerns that his stance especially on immigration and allowing people into the country to do research will kind of block the ability of American universities to attract scientific talent from around the world. Trump says the federal government should encourage innovation in the areas of space exploration and investment in research and development across the broad landscape of academia, but he also acknowledges that there might be cuts because there are increasing demands to curtail spending and to balance the federal budget. He does acknowledge that scientific advances require long-term investment, though. So he does have some understanding of the funding reality and how the process of science works, but at the same time, he's looking at the budget in general and going, I'm going to have to do something about that. So we don't know what's going to happen. He did comment on the National Institute of Health last year on Michael Savage's right-wing talk show. When he was on the campaign trail, he was asked whether he would consider appointing Michael Savage to head the NIH, and Trump said, I think that's great. You know, you'd get common sense if that were the case. That I can tell you, because I hear so much about the NIH, and it's terrible. That's a very good Trump. Hey, thanks. It's tremendous, tremendous. (laughs) It's your tone. (laughs) So a science debate question about federal research for public health. Trump replied, in a time of limited resources, one must ensure that the nation is getting the greatest bang for the buck. So so good. (laughs) So we'll see where it goes. People are also talking about recently who he's going to be appointing to his cabinet. Will he be appointing creationist neuroscientist Ben Carson to head the Department of Education? Will he be appointing a climate change denier to head the EPA? Yes. Yeah. Will he be appointing an oil industry insider as Secretary of the Interior? I mean, there, these are questions that we will see what's going to happen. But the talk on the Hill is that even though he was going to drain the swamp, it seems as though there's going to be, the drain seems to be clogged. Yeah. So To say the least, still going to be pretty murky over there. If not worse, I think most certainly worse. And we'll see where it goes. But I think uh, one of the important things to bring up, we don't know what is exactly going to happen in a Trump presidency, But as we spoke with Michael Halpern in our science and policy 
discussion as a scientist. If you are interested in having an impact in policy decisions, you should contact your local representative, congresspeople, and offer help in the areas in which you are an expert because they need help. Now more than ever. Now more than ever. Exactly. Moving away from political topics, at least for my part of the roundup, for pregnancy and how you, you know, maybe this goes into <laughs> our pol- a political system also, how you nurture something, an organism, has long-lasting effects on its health. And uh, this has been shown time and again in mouse and rat studies. It's been shown that mothers who had decreased nutrient intake or caloric intake during pregnancy, their offspring had health problems such as heart conditions. And in a new study in the Journal of Physiology, a study shows on primates that the same system is at play. So uh, there's evidence that a mother's nutrition has bearing on her child's health, specifically on the health of the heart. In this study, 16 pregnant baboons were fed normal amount of chow. 16 others received a 30% reduction in calorie intake during pregnancy. And this is a reduction that the researchers characterize as kind of moderate. It's not starvation. It's enough to keep a mother going, but they're not well-fed. And what they found is that although the offspring caught up in body weight after they were born. They were born small, but and they caught up to the control condition offspring. But their hearts had more fibrous, abnormally shaped heart muscle. And so the cells of the heart are normally upside down, kind of pyramidally shaped, but these offspring had more rounded and less muscular hearts. They're not as efficient at pumping blood and had about a 20% lower average output of blood volume. And the hearts appeared to age faster. So by age five in the primates, which is the equivalent of about 25 in humans, many of the heart functions more closely resembled the hearts of primates about three times as old. The researcher who is in charge of this study What this shows us is that certainly maternal diet has an effect on child's cardiac health long term, and that this is a fundamentally conserved mechanism since what we're seeing now is that this is repeated in study after study. So we're seeing similar findings in species and across species. So if you are a pregnant mother, don't diet. (laughs) (laughs) You should just enjoy gaining a bit of weight while you're pregnant. It's all good. It's all good. You should eat. Eat what your body tells you. But I guess the key is, in terms of not eating, I don't even know about not eating too much, but it's about healthy choices, right? Which can be tough, I guess, with the cravings. I think the real problem with pregnancy and overeating is the stuff that's out there. You know, you kind of go haywire when you're pregnant, right? You've been there. I don't know. Cookies, ice cream. Yeah, Yeah. and she's just surrounded by bad options in the modern day. So you just got to be smart. But don't diet. I mean, come on. Yeah, the last thing you want to do is, like, retain your svelte figure while you're pregnant. Exactly. (laughs) Let's be honest. Your life is over, right? No. Are you going to be dating after? Come on. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. In ways that people can get involved in science, I love citizen science stuff. And there is a new game 
for people who like playing video games and want to help with science. It's called Stall Catchers. And it you can go play it if you go to stall, S-T-A-L-L, catchers, C-A-T-C-H-E-R-S dot com. It's a website where you can sift through short black and white videos of mouse brains and look for blocked blood vessels. So a blood stall in the blood vessels. And so finding and identifying these blockages is super time consuming for researchers and they haven't come up with a great, you know, machine learning or computerized way to identify these blockages. And so now it's put it out there, distributed computing by people. We're going to figure out how to identify these blockages better so that computers can do it more easily later to help researchers, to help surgeons to be able to find out where problems are occurring in brains. Specifically, the group that came up with this from Cornell University, they're interested in these symptoms related to Alzheimer's disease. And so there's a thought that jams or stalls in blood supply in the brain might be involved in Alzheimer's disease. And so if you can improve sluggishly flowing blood, get it flowing more quickly, there's a potential for you know, removing the muck that is tangled up in the cellular machinery, kind of get the waste removal system, which the blood is part of, get that waste removal system working and flowing better, that it might help improve Alzheimer's symptoms or development. And so they say about a thousand users have played stall catchers so far. It's a game, so you actually can get points and you go up in levels, I guess, where it's harder and harder stalls to identify. Uh, I and, don't think so. Yeah, and you I can do it. it. You can do it on your own. You can play it as a group. It's, uh, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, it sounds boring. I'll be honest. It sounds boring. <laughs> I got a game. You know, I got this great video game. It's called Doing My Laundry. Okay? Oh, Why don't you Crowdsource it. Crowdsource. Go on the net. You can sign up. Come to my address. I give you a bunch of clothes. You put them in a machine. You fold them. It's really, it can be fun. Totally. Yeah. A lot of people like this kind of stuff. There's Fold It, which is a game for protein folding that people have played. There have been games for identifying, I think it's called Galaxy Zoo, which is a game for identifying different kinds of galaxies in space. And so Stall Catchers is kind of working on that same gamification of science platform, getting people, a lot of times it's, you know, people who are just at home, they're a little bored, they want something to do, or kids in classrooms. This is something that if you have a computer in the classroom, you can get students playing it, identifying, and then you can talk about these kinds of things. And so it can become a real learning and hands-on engaging process. So there are, your laundry, I don't think is going to be as engaging. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. Well, at least there's a good there's a good thing about this. My laundry's very selfish. <laughs> selfish laundry. I know. I have selfish laundry too. Clean me. You must clean me. <laughs> oh, all right. Get over yourself, laundry. <laughs> My last story for the roundup is related to Zika, and it's some potentially good news hey. for Zika. Yeah. So while researchers are still trying to work on a vaccine. There's a report in Nature from November 7th about the possibility of an antibody therapy, antibody treatment, that in this study markedly reduced tissue pathology, 
placental and fetal infection, and mortality in mice. And the authors conclude in the study that human antibodies can protect against maternal fetal transmission, infection, and disease, and can also reveal important determinants for structure-based vaccine design efforts that are ongoing. So what they discovered is there's a human antibody that was actually one of many antibodies isolated and identified from people who had been infected with Zika and successfully, their bodies successfully fought off the infection. And so they were essentially naturally immune to Zika. Their antibodies were identified. One particular human antibody called ZikV117 was shown to have these amazingly protective effects, protecting mice from death after Zika infection. The researchers used one of the Zika virus strains with the highest pathogenicity and gave them just a lethal dose and then gave the mice the antibody and it protected them. So they basically were like, this should kill the mice. This infection should kill them. And then the antibody protected them, not only protected them, but protected offspring from birth defects and death as well. So could potentially be used to protect pregnant women during pregnancy and their babies as we are waiting for a vaccine to be developed. Could also be given to the husbands of women who want to get pregnant if husbands are infected also. It's a really big deal. You know, people stop talking about Zika, I guess, because the weather turned cold, the whole Trumpocalypse thing. And now these hardworking researchers, they're following through. And then the weather gets warm. People start freaking out again. We'll have a first-line therapy. Great development. My brother is pregnant with his first kid. This is really a big deal for for my family. So I'm I'm hoping this is a a real solve. Yeah. So that's it, huh? That's it. I'm glad I could end on some really good news for my part of the roundup. That was. That's good news. Positive. Yeah, let's be positive. Lots of positive positive post-it notes for the world. There we go. Let's first, before we get positive, let's dwell on the negative. Oh, great. Okay. I like, let's dwell. <laughs> we got to start from the bottom and then we, we come to where we are. So stem cells and Trump, what is going to be the outcome here? You know, ESL research, embryonic stem cell research, there was about $180 million distributed by the NIH to around 250 projects last year. All these Projects rely on cell lines that were originally created from donated blastocyst stage embryos, you know, these pre-implantation stage embryos before they go into the uterus. They were left over from in vitro fertilization. So the NIH has a registry of all these cell lines that have been generated over the now decades. And the registry, it maintains funding for these eligible human ES cell lines. And the first executive office order of President Obama when he came into office, in fact, was this order which loosened the whole previous era, the Bush era restrictions on stem cells. So, you know, <laughs> it wouldn't be exactly unexpected. It seems like new president, new rules. It wouldn't be unexpected to see a change in policy. And that has a lot of people nervous. Now, Trump has not really indicated a position on embryonic stem cell research, though he has vowed in a typically Trump-esque, sweeping, general, yet vague declaration, he vowed to cancel. I can't do a Trump accent like you, but I'm going to try. <laughs> cancel every unconstitutional executive accent. I sound like a mobster. I'm just going to speak in my own voice. <laughs> he vowed 
to cancel every unconstitutional, cancel every unconstitutional underline executive action, memorandum, and order issued by President Obama. Every one. Wow. Yeah. Ambitious. Only the unconstitutional ones, though, actually. So that was his plan that he released for his first 100 days in office. Wow. Nice plan. So according to Tony Mazashi, the senior director for policy and research at the Association of Schools and Programs of Public Health in Washington, D.C., quote, Trump could clearly go in and reverse the president's executive order and change NIH policy. The ramifications of that would be difficult to parse, he adds. Though the reversal would remove the underpinning of that NIH registry, it might take other executive orders to shut down the federal funding apparatus for ESL research completely or to limit it further to, you know, fewer cell lines. And, you know, maybe a more scary view of the future vice president-elect, future president post-impeachment, Mike Pence, meanwhile, he's consistently opposed ESL research. He says the discovery of induced pluripotent stem cells, the reprogrammed cells, makes it unnecessary to take cells from embryos. I wonder what Shinya Yamanaka, the guy who invented IPS cells. I wonder what position he would take on that. My bet is that he would disagree with you, Mike Pence. You know, some have suggested that if Trump ban did come to pass, it might stimulate support for these state-level resources. There was the CIRM, California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, famous $3 billion initiative. There's one in New York, all these statewide initiatives. And a renewed federal ban could probably jumpstart that as an idea. But I don't know why that's positive. I don't know why you know, shutting down the funding apparatus is we could kind of put a silver lining on it that we get statewide. What if you're in, you know, Wisconsin? You're not going to get any money. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest points there is, you know, you when you go to the state level, it's like, sure, the really wealthy states can afford to put money towards something like this. And so researchers in those states, great, they'll be able to do the research. But if you're in a state that doesn't have that kind of funding, yeah. you're out of luck if the federal ban goes into place. Exactly. There's no money for you if you're in one of those states. The rich get richer. Yeah. I mean, talk about this, this whole thing. There's so much wrapped up in this election, the irony. So, you know, a lot of people are they're kind of agnostic or they're waiting to see. My graduate school mentor actually said a piece. Uh, he was quoted as saying, this is Ali Brivenloo at Rockefeller University. He said, I personally would be very surprised if reason doesn't prevail here. Ali, always an optimist. That's why I love him, always will. Continuing the quote, he says, I have seen this movie 16 years ago. I would be very shocked if it happened again. That's so Ali. He has a, he has a real good gift of turning a phrase. And I think he's right. I think, you know, we went through this, and it was kind of a fiasco. I'm not concerned about... I'm concerned about a lot of things, but this specific thing, I don't know. I don't know. I think with Trump, as far as his campaigning and what he said on the campaign trail, you know, he's very pro-states' rights, pro-reducing... You know, it's the Republican platform, which is reducing government interference across the board. So federal government reduce it, stop the influence, and, and give more power to the states so that it's more local controlled. But like you said, that can work, but it's only going to work really well for some states and not for others. And so the federal government is plays a big role in just spreading the money equally so that everybody has a chance. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, listen, not to get too technical, as someone in the position, I realize that universities and, and academic centers they like the state funding, but the state funding, the institutional overhead that's attached to that is usually much, much less, 10% of the grant. 
Whereas the NIH funding apparatus, it's, you know, between 50, as many, as much as like 100% institutional overhead. And that's how these people keep the lights on at these places. Yeah. So the idea that state funding can completely, you know, go into play, I think is not really reasonable or logical. But again, we'll have to wait and see. It's all a big mess, Kiki, but time will tell. Time will tell because, you know, let's stop predicting, right? We don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I know nothing, (laughs) clearly. But, you know, there's plenty of people who do know things. They're finding them out and they're finding them out on a level of resolution that is unprecedented into the science portion of the stem cell roundup. So, you know, sequencing, sequence, the enome, the onome, all the gnomes, they got it all. And it used to be that we would figure out the global thing. We'd take a bunch of these things and we'd look at their ohms. But now the focus is on single cell level. Why? Because of heterogeneity. Every cell has a little nuance to it, you know. And I think what we're finding out is that cellular heterogeneity underlies a lot of physiological processes. All right, so researchers at Karolinska Institute, they measured the absolute numbers of short non-coding RNA sequences in individual embryonic stem cells. All right, so just now to backtrack, we've done all the global stuff, and then we go to single cell sequencing. There's been a lot of people who have done that for messenger RNA, the coding RNA, but there's all these other RNAs, like the microRNAs, that have a regulatory function that can be really, really important and I think underappreciated. So now these researchers at Karolinska have mapped the presence of these short RNA sequences in an individual cell, you know, and it's difficult when you're looking at a lot of cells to study precise function. And it's sometimes it's impractical to use that type of assay when you can't get a lot of cells. It's impractical to use a traditional method. So the analysis using this single cell transcriptomics technique may be clinically really important. What the researchers did is they used embryonic stem cell derivatives intended to mimic the early embryo before and after it's attached to the uterine lining. And they detected a large number of the small RNAs, these micro or other RNAs in both of these different cell states. These include these micro RNAs as well as these other cryptic shorter RNA fragments, tRNA. Well, we know kind of what that is, but snow RNA. You ever heard of snow RNA? No. I don't know what that is. They keep coming up with these prefixes for RNA, and it's like, I can't keep on top of it. I don't even know. I don't even, I'm not even going to try to know. But they found it. It's there. Small nucleolar. Oh, did you just guess? Or did no, you look I that up? Googled it. Oh, well. Small nucleolar. You're right. I can say that you're right because you found it on Google, but I, I, I didn't try to know. You made me know. Now I know, and I don't care. So to quote Omid Faradani, one of the lead authors, this is basic research and a demonstration that the method works, giving suggestions for further research to map the levels of short RNA molecules in the cells of first step to identifying the specific function of these molecules. So one example of a way that you might be able to use these is like figuring out if these RNAs play a role in earlier embryo development, whereas before you really had no insight into what's going on in early embryo at least clinically speaking, now you could do like a single cell biopsy of a pre-implantation stage embryo, look at the levels of these microRNAs, and they may be like diagnostic as to embryo quality and help with selecting embryos that have the best chance of implanting in the context of, say, IVF. So maybe some clinical applications there, some more RNAs that we can see. It's always a good thing, Kiki. 
this past year, I do know that there's been at least one study on microRNAs in sperm suggesting that the microRNAs might actually, that are in the sperm, carried along in the capsule, like might play a huge role in the fertility and the development of certain traits in the embryo. So it might not just be the embryo itself, but also, you know, each of the original cells, you know, these germ cells. Right. We've got microRNAs all over the place. Even in the sperm, those tiny yeah. little buggers. Wow. I guess yeah. that's why they're microRNAs. <laughs> tiny. All right. So let's move on. Now we got uh, this liver story, you know, for all those degenerate alcoholics out there. Not just them. <laughs> so this, this past weekend. Uh... <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you're looking to recover from your sorrows. Yeah. So. The major idea with regenerative therapy, one of the major underpinnings, is this idea that you can in vitro culture cells and to expand them to huge numbers and then like peel off some and use them to generate tissues, organs, whatever. But a challenge in the liver is that when you expand these progenitors in vitro, the parasitic progenitors, they lose their differentiation capacity, Okay. So we're limited in how much we can grow these and still have them work. So also these recent lineage tracing studies in the last few years have shown that mature hepatocytes, it's, there's no real stem cell. It's actually mature hepatocytes that convert to an immature state during chronic, in the context of chronic liver injury. And what the researchers here, this is Takeshi Katsuda's first author and his group published in Cell Stem Cell recently. In the study, what they did is they wanted to see if that conversion of in the chronic injured liver where the matures go back and become this progenitor fate, if they could recapitulate that in vitro. And they used a cocktail of small molecules that I'm not going to name. It's a bunch of letters and numbers. And they actually show that they can convert rat and mouse mature hepatocytes in vitro into a proliferative bipotent progenitor cell. They call this these chemically induced liver progenitors or CLPS. That's a nice little acronym. I mean, these clips could differentiate into both mature hepatocytes in turn and also biliary epithelial cells that can form together these functional ductal structures. And these clips in long-term culture didn't lose their proliferative capacity so that they could expand like in perpetuity, essentially. And in the rat, the clips could extensively repopulate chronically injured liver with an efficiency wow. of, get this, 75 to 90 percent. Wow. So I don't know why people aren't going crazy over this, but, yeah. you know, to tell me if I'm wrong here, but doesn't this mean that you can extract cells from someone, get their liver cells, convert them to progenitors, freeze them or use them on the spot, expand them and get unlimited liver growth? I mean, this is big, Kiki. This sounds I'm huge. Start drinking heavily. <laughs> <laughs> liver for everyone. <laughs> you get a liver. You get a new liver. <laughs> it's going to be ugly. I mean, maybe that's why no one's talking about this. It's like a big liability. <laughs> I, I think it's just fabulous. I mean, for you know any kind of liver disease, the liver does have a wonderful naturally regenerative capacity, but if you can get rid of the disease and implant healthy liver and get it to grow and replace and not have to worry about transplants from other people. The compatibility would be amazing. It would be big. Yeah. It's huge. And I'm joking about the drinking thing, but, you know, hepatitis, it affects millions and millions yeah. and millions of people all over the world. So, you know, there's a lot of people out there with damaged livers, diseased livers. So this is a, a big inroad. 
Now on to something that maybe not so, uh, I don't know. Maybe it is exciting, as exciting, but not as flashy. <laughs> chromatin. Chromatin. And chromatin is pretty cool. It's like one of those things people didn't even know. There was a whole level of regulation no one even knew about. And then they found it, and now everyone's focused on it, and it's a big deal. But, uh, and this is chromatin, you know, and, and chromatin regulation specifically. It's known that it's critical. It's a hot subject because it's critical in the context of differentiation, you know, development, in disease. But specifically, features linking the chromatin environment of stem cells with disease haven't been really addressed and remain largely unknown. So in this study, Gomez et al. in Cell Reports, they explored chromatin accessibility in embryonic and multipotent stem cells. And unexpectedly, they identified widespread chromatin accessibility at repetitive elements, okay? So when we're talking about accessibility, is this like if the DNA is wrapped tightly around a histone, it's not accessible? Yes. Right? If it's tightly knotted up, you can't get into it. Exactly. I mean, people think of the DNA either one of two ways, that it's like a long noodle all coiled up, which is kind of true, kind of not, or the idea of the chromosomes, you know, and during telekinesis and these little X's and all that. Yeah. But the reality is that you know, twofold. One is that it's dynamic. It goes from the chromosomes phase and then it can decondense and while it's, you know, in the working cell. And also what people understand is that the DNA breathes. It's not a static structure. It's constantly in motion, like everything in this universe. So the chromatin accessibility is, well, how easily these regulatory factors can get into the chromatin and start reading it. And you know, it's emerging in the idea that this accessibility is a huge determinant of whether or not genes are trans- transcribed and how they're transcribed. So integrating genomic and biochemical approaches, the Gomez and his partners over there, they show that the sites of increasing accessibility are associated with well-positioned nucleosomes marked by distinct histone modifications. Mm-hmm. And differentiation of these stem cells is accompanied by chromatin remodeling at these repetitive elements. And this is associated with altered expression of the genes that are relevant to the differentiation process. Okay? And interestingly, they found that the chromatin accessibility and environment in the context of Ewing sarcoma, which is a mesenchymal tumor, is similar and shared even with primary mesenchymal stem cells. So the accessibility of the chromatin in these mesenchymal stem cells offers this accessible, permissive environment that is then exploited in the context of Ewing sarcoma by this critical oncogene that drives the cancer. So to catch all, I mean, that's, that's a bit opaque, everything I just said there, but the bottom line is, is that stem cells have a very unique chromatin landscape that is pretty much defined by this increased accessibility at these repetitive elements. And that feature, the increased accessibility at the repetitive elements, is a feature that's associated with cancer and oncogenesis as well. So it's the first time now that we're linking the chromatin environment of stem cells with disease. And that's exciting, although it's not making me, you know, jump off the walls like that hepatic story, which I'm (laughs) I'm pretty excited about. But you know, anything that we can call progress in this era of uncertainty, Kiki, is a bomb to my, I say, anxiety, at least, if not my current crisis. My fight or flight is really popping right now. Yeah, let the science soothe you. 
the soothing sounds of science. (laughs) This roundup really brought me down to earth. Oh, good. Well, it was an awesome roundup. And remember that all the links to these papers will be up on the episode show page at stemcellpodcast.com. And of course, they can be emailed directly to you by signing up for the newsletter. All right. So now let's get into the interview segment of the show. The interview portion of the show is sponsored by Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell Technologies wants you to know about their awesome new wall chart, directed differentiation of pluripotent stem cells. We've talked a bit about this on previous episodes, but this poster was created by Kevin Egan and his colleagues over at Harvard University, and it's an easy-to-follow overview of different cell types derived from pluripotent stem cells. It's divided into germ cells, endoderm, mesoderm, ectoderm, for very quick reference. Pretty colors, once again, soothing to the eye, the soothing pictures of science. You can explore this wall chart, and uh, if you as a Stem Cell Podcast listener want a copy, you can go to stemcell.com slash go direct. That's www.stemcell.com slash go direct. You can hang it on your wall, share it with your whole lab. I don't know, give it away as a Hanukkah present, Yes. a Thanksgiving table decoration. I don't know. Have everyone know the joys of stem cell proliferation. Our guest today is Dr. Alpa Mahuvakar Trivedi. She's a researcher and molecular biologist in the Noble Lab in the Department of Neurosurgery at the University of California, San Francisco in neuropathic pain and bladder dysfunction. They represent significant quality of life issues for many spinal cord injury patients. And our guest's work describes a new possible therapeutic approach to improving the quality of life of spinal cord injured patients. Alpa, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. Part of what you're working, I mean, there are many people around the world who are struggling with spinal cord injury, with degenerative disorders related to the nerves in the spinal cord and how that affects the functioning of the rest of their body. Can you give the audience just a little bit more of an introduction into your work and what you do? Oh, absolutely. So when you think of a spinal cord injured patient, the first vision that a person has is somebody who is paraplegic or quadriplegic and on a wheelchair. So the most striking effect is loss of locomotor function, which is really visually very sustaining. About a decade ago, Linda Noblehausline and I went to a SERM meeting in UCR Wine, and where we met with patients and asked them what their first What was their real concern? It wasn't that they wanted to walk out of wheelchair, but bladder dysfunction and neuropathic pain were top on their list. They really wanted to have some therapy for these two dysfunctions that people rarely would visually be able to see or notice. And that's when we started looking for therapeutic avenues where these two dysfunctions actually that really affect a spinal cord injured patient could be met. How did you end up working in the direction of your most recent stem cell paper where you're using stem cells to repair the spinal cord injury? So this was a collaboration that started eight years ago with Arnold Crickstein's lab. And they had developed a mouse medial ganglionic eminence type of cells from the mouse embryos and transplanted them to look at functional recovery and had done these studies in pain. 
So our research showed that what happens in spinal cord injury is you have loss of the GABAergic tone. So you have excitatory neurons and inhibitory neurons that actually carry out the function to carry out bladder function and other locomotor functions in normal functioning of a human being. In response to spinal cord injury, you have inflammation. That's number one. And second of all, you have an immense loss of the GABAergic tone, which means you have less of the inhibitory neurons. So you have a lot of excitation, and this excitation signals that are sent by the neurons actually result in spasticity of the bladder. So your muscles of the bladder actually are contracting when the sphincter has to relax to void. That's normally how bladder widening happens. But in a spinal cord injured patient, unfortunately, when the bladder muscles are contracting, so also is the sphincter muscle. So this one, this phenomena is called detrusor sphincter dyssynergia. Of course, it's a hallmark of neurogenic bladder dysfunction uh, in spinal cord injured patients, but it is not limited to them. You can have this dysfunction in Alzheimer's patients, Parkinson's multiple sclerosis, any kind of obstructive diseases are going to lead to neurogenic bladder dysfunction. And spinal cord injury is just one of them. So we decided that maybe using these cells that now will increase the inhibitory tone would lead to less spasticity and dyssynergia and improve bladder function in the mice. In terms of how this treatment is applied. So I know that, as you said, the bladder control and neuropathic pain are top of the list. You know, we're all thinking about people getting up out of their wheelchairs, but we're thinking about real world change. But with that in mind, of course, there's a great need. But also, is it that you described kind of the mechanism there of the dysfunction? Is it kind of like a low hanging fruit? Is this easier I mean, to say then getting someone to get out of a wheelchair, is that why maybe this is the first thing that looks like it may be therapeutically applicable? Or would you say that this same treatment could be applied in order to restore locomotor function in someone who has a, you know, a paraplegic or quadriplegic? So the applications for a bladder dysfunction, I think, are more profound in the sense it can hit a lot of diseases that result in bladder dysfunction. That's number one, besides spinal cord injury. Mm. And that would be, for me, number one. Second of all, no, I don't think either one of them is easy. One of the main reasons why this is not easy, and especially spinal cord injured patients, is right now we currently have quarter of a million that are injured. And they have sustained injuries that may be you know, over decades. So we have a vast chronically injured population that suffers from bladder dysfunction and locomotor dysfunction. But think about regular catheterization, which is top of the line treatment right now and the only treatment uh, for these patient population. None of these treatments come without side effects. So just quality of life for this patient population is a big issue with these two debilitating conditions besides loss of locomotor function. So as far as to answer your question, if this is an easier approach and that's why we picked, no, I don't think so. I'm sorry, Alpa, I don't want to create the wrong impression. 
I know that none of this stuff is easy. Believe me, I'm in science and it's all hard and I fail all day. So I I have a lot of respect for what you guys are done. I guess to clarify the question, really what I want to know is this kind of like the advanced on a therapy that's ultimately going to be extended to address locomotor function? Or is that just a totally different approach that you need to use? in order to like repair and restore locomotor function. Yeah, because you're talking about getting neurons to talk to each other, yeah. to connect right. again, right. right? Right. So the cell therapy that we used are specifically inhibitory interneurons. And these are local, these are not projection neurons. They function at the site of implantation. They basically secrete GABA that's functioning at the synapses. Locomotor function needs long descending fiber tracts of projection neurons that then help in locomotor function. So Uh, the way I look at progress, a step in progress is, I would say most of the researchers in spinal cord injury are working on rescuing locomotor function. Now, if we do both these therapies together, I think that would be fantastic. So you have a mixture of cells that now help locomotor function that are mixed with these MG interneurons. And then that, I think, would be an overall, a global therapy for a spinal cord injured patient. I see. And so with what you've done in the mouse model, these GABAergic interneurons that, that are implanted into the thoracic column, they're in the spinal cord. Are they receiving top-down control from the brain? Or is it just, like you said, just a, is it very local and they just release GABA to inhibit that tonic excitation that's ongoing in the bladder? Very good question. So first of all, we did the injury at the thoracic level, but the cells were implanted in the lumbosacral region. Okay. So that region is actually where the pontine mctrucian centers and the onus nucleus. So we were very close to the onus nucleus that controls bladder function. And what we showed was over a six-month period, when these cells are maturing, they're also migrating. So we had a long window or an axial distribution of these cells over a centimeter going towards the site of injury and also towards one of the nucleus. So the action of these cells is very local. They get the signals from the brain and the remaining cells in the spinal cord, the surviving cells, I would say the neurons, and they then secrete GABA to kind of decrease that tonic excitatory signals that are constantly present at the onus nucleus. So that's what we are trying to do. Yeah. So it's just disrupting, disrupting that tonic excitation. Yeah. Yeah. Constant excitation. Yeah. It's like, you know, whatever people are doing on the internet these days, disruptive science. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So with the protocol, I don't want to go into detail, but I think it's interesting this. And, and the first, I think, stories that came out of the creasing lab generating these uh, medial ganglionic eminence. Do you mind if I just call those the MGE so I don't Absolutely, uh, trip yes. over myself? Um, yes. These MGE cells, a big part of all these stories seems to be the maturation. It seems like a lot of the, the IPS cells are ES cells that they generate tissues that are kind of embryonic coral. It makes sense. Okay. And so you got to get them to this mature level. How does that manifest in here? Do you get them to like an early stage and then they mature in post-injection? Or do you have to guide them through this whole, you know, weeks, months protocol in vitro and then implant them? We do carry out the protocol 
It is a seven-week protocol that's carried out before they actually... So they're already pre-programmed, and then the rest of the maturation happens in the spinal cord itself. And our first study, so if you look at the paper, what we did was our first study was to look at in uninjured animals, whether these cells and just the transplantation protocol itself, because it's really invasive. And we were going to go very close to the McTrician Center. We actually did not want to cause more harm than good. So we had to do a control study and we made sure that these cells are implanting these cells, A, that they survive for six months before, you know, we do this in spinal cord injured mice. And they did survive. And uh, what we first confirmed was they actually are differentiating into these interneuron subtypes. And what is very interesting is A, migration, the dispersion of the cells based on local signals that come from the injury site is different. So in an uninjured, they don't disperse as much as they do in an injured spinal cord. Mm-hmm. So yes, the local signals that are there after injury will definitely guide us to where they go and what they become. And there's no danger, or there may be. I know, you know, I'm not in this field, so excuse my naivete, but the idea that if you hyperactivate, like in treating Parkinson's, for instance, you can like in- introduce an influence that's a little hyperactive. Is there the same potential with this? Do you have to carefully calibrate the cells? Is there a chance you could... Or is it just you restore that function and there's no too much, too little type of thing with the bladder? Yeah, absolutely right. There could be too much, too little. So we actually did a dose response, especially for pain. We saw that if you had over 200,000 cells, you had better recovery of the pain syndrome after injury as compared to less than 200. So there is a dose. And for future, definitely, you know, going to larger animals and doing a thorough dose response, characterizing these cells that are GMP grade would be the next steps actually to take this into clinical trials. Yeah. So are the next step, is that the direction that you're going? Are we going to see, you know, are they going to be pig studies, sheep studies, then humans? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely (laughs) big animal models and non-human primates Mm -hmm. before. Yeah. And dose response safety, So in mice, definitely, we found that there was, you know, we did not have tumor formation or they did not become really, you know, there was no pluripotency left. We didn't have OCT4 signaling. We didn't have any of those KI67 markers expressed and no overt overgrowth anywhere in the spinal cord, So, which was good. And this was over six months time period. Is there any possibility of looking for a longer time period? I know in my six months is a large portion of their life. What does six months in a mouse mean conversely to another larger animal with a longer lifespan? So a six-month time period. I mean, I'll just go to 14 days. This is something that I'd calculated. We injured the mice when they were adults. So they're already three months old when the injury happens. And... The studies went on between six and seven months. And so that's already close to a year old yeah. mouse now you're looking at. But the cell implantation happened two weeks after the injury. If you convert that in terms of human years, it is a decade. Wow. So, so just 14 days. Yeah. It's a decade in humans. 
In terms uh, of your assay there, though, I, this is a, maybe a silly question, but how do you measure bladder control? I would think, personally, that's like a subjective thing. So you're just monitoring the mice, like the frequency, or please illuminate me. We actually used two very complementary approaches. Uh, one was a widening pattern in the cages. And in this, what happens is there's a filter paper that is placed in each of the cages. And for eight hours, we are monitoring their widening. A normal mouse will define a specific corner in the cage, whether it may be right, left, up, or down. And it would wide only in those specific spots during the whole eight-hour period resulting in large widening patterns. So there's a big drop of urine, you know, X centimeters in diameter, and that's all that you would see in an uninjured mouse. In contrast, when a mouse is injured, there are two things that happen. One is they can wide very little, and whenever they do wide, it is very sporadic. It may be spots. So every time a mouse walks, there may be a leak of a bladder because they really don't have a control of the bladder. It's contracting and most of the times the contractions result in non-widening events. So it, the bladder is constantly contracting, very hyperactive, but there is no leakage of urine. And so in these mice, what you see is a lot of small spots and no controlled widening in any of the corners. What we saw in the vehicle-treated mice is basically that widening pattern of a spinal cord-injured mouse where you had lots of tiny spots but no corner widening, which is what is seen in control mice. And then the mice that were treated uh, with the MGE cells had more controlled widening in the corner, which, which meant the diameter of the urine spots were bigger, and also they had decreased number of the small spots. So that showed us that they improved their bladder function. So the second test that we actually did was what is done in humans and what is also done in uh, any animal population that has spinal cord injury, which is very common actually in certain dog species. It's called systometry. And that is actually implanting a catheter in the mouse bladder and then measuring the pressure. So what normally happens is there's a vast increase in bladder pressure because of the urine retention in the bladder. And so we are measuring bladder pressure during widening, without widening, bladder efficiency. How efficient is the bladder in actually widening the urine? And that can be measured by efficiency. It can also be measured by how much residual urine you have after a widening event occurs. So once it empties, is there residual urine? And what happens in humans is they cannot completely wide, and this presence of urine constantly in the bladder leads to a lot of UTI. And there's also a backflow, which can go up to urinal and cause kidney failure. Yes. So those are the two methods that we used for measuring bladder function. So like an objective measure and a low-tech measure. I'm always so impressed the way scientists figure out ways to ask questions when they can't ask the mouse, how, how's your frequency of urination? They just got to figure yeah. it out. It's really, I, I think that's the coolest thing about science. <laughs> <laughs> it is a very cool thing. And moving forward, I think one of the most interesting things here also is that we're getting at this testing things in a way that is 
asking, okay, how similar is this to humans? We're using measures that you would possibly use in humans, but in this mouse model, you're looking at mice over a time period that could potentially be a very long time period for a human. And hopefully the potential results when we win, I'm not going to say if, I'm going to say when we get to human tests, hopefully it will lead to actual treatment. So what are the steps there? You got preclinical, I guess, safety, you're thinking of moving into there, and then the efficacy. But I feel like the safety you've kind of addressed with the failure to form the teratoma. Are there yeah. other kind of safety concerns you worry about when you're introducing cells? What's the constellation of risk that you consider when you're introducing these MGE cells into you know, the spinal right. cord? Safety would be number one. So what do they become? And uh, I think both in an uninjured and in an injured mouse, we are very comfortable that they actually differentiate mostly into neurons and not many astrocytes and not many oligodendroglia. So that's a good sign. And we are not seeing any proliferation. So safety basically would be my number one concern as to long term what happens to them. What about um, for pain? So we got the bladder mechanism pretty well. Is it essentially the same idea with this neuropathic pain? Yes. So central neuropathic pain is also a result of a lot of excitation in the signaling. And you have a decrease in the hypo-excitable neurons, so the interneurons that actually subdue the excitation. There's a great loss of these neurons after spinal cord injury. And that actually hypoexcitability results in pain. So normal pain and same thing with the bladder medications right now with baclofen, uh, which is given. It's to control both of them and it has a lot of side effects. So the way we measured pain was looking at two different events, uh, which was uh, thermal, a response to a thermal stimulus, and also a response to a mechanical stimulus. And over the six-month period, we saw that the animals that actually got the MGE cells had uh, reduced hypersensitivity to these pain stimuli, suggesting that the central neuropathic pain, which is caused after spinal cord injury, would also be a target that the MGE cells would help. I'm always thinking, because I'm a real geek, how you can get superpowers from stem cells. If you put <laughs> like it, super right? hyper excitable, whatever, could you make me just walk around and I feel no pain? Because I'm surrounded by, I have a lot of pain in my life. Out there. Could, could, you, <laughs> could you help me? to? not pain in your life. <laughs> or is it feasible? Is that even where it's not like the bladder too much, too little. Can you make someone so they're totally insent, not totally, but desensitize them to pain by the same mechanism? So if the pain is neuropathic pain signal, then the MGE cells definitely would help. So this pain syndrome that happens in the spinal cord injured patients, just just to say like small things like just the touch of clothing. I see. Mm -hmm. That's how sensitive they get. So So it's things that would otherwise not be painful, they're painful, but it doesn't make, it doesn't make you completely, like if I were to really, you know, stab them with a needle, there's nothing I could do to somebody to make them insensitive. I see. see. And you really don't want to be insensitive to pain. Speak for yourself, all right? (laughs) 
I'm just gonna if, if that happens to you, I'm gonna end up seeing you're gonna be missing a finger, you're gonna have burn marks all over yourself. Like <laughs> what's gonna <laughs> come on? How about emotional pain? Can you find me some cells for that? <laughs> that would help all of us, wouldn't it? <laughs> oh yeah. It seems to me, though, I mean, with, with the pain side of things, with the hypersensitivity that you're talking about, it's like it's taken it past a normal threshold and the therapy would be bring it closer to normal. Yes. Yeah. Foiled again. There goes my yeah. dreams of being <laughs> Professor X. Not only do I get to be a co-host with you, Dalen, I get to be your foil to these <laughs> ideas of yours, these crazy ideas. Where do you think all my emotional pain comes from, Kiki? I have you to thank. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Alpha, is there anything that we're missing so far with relation to, you know, what you're working on and the ultimate direction and how, you know, five to ten years longer before... How long is it going to be before we hopefully are getting to those human studies? I would say longer. Longer. A lot of studies still need to be done where dose response, I think, is a big thing. We would have to do a dose response. And currently, we in this study, we have used cells that were modified with GFP. Definitely cannot use them in humans. We are not going to put green fluorescent protein in humans. So developing the cell line so that we can still track them, but they do not express GFP. So developing GMP type cells and retesting them again, doing a dose response, then shifting to higher non-human primate models, and then it will be clinical trials. So that could happen in 10 years. I think that could happen. Yeah. I believe in you. <laughs> These are your superpowers, getting this work done quickly. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> we need you. We need yeah. you to get it done. And if you can't do that whole thing with the painkilling too, all right? Please. Yes, absolutely. I'll keep you in mind, Dalen. There we go. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. It's just been, it's been wonderful hearing about your research and what you're working on. And it is exciting, even though it is still in the distance the timely distance. It is, it is very exciting. So thank you for doing the work that you do and joining us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. All right, Alpa, good luck. Thank you. Thank you, Dalen. All right, Kiki, what a great interview with Alpa there. I mean, she really gave us, a, I think, a nice synthesis of the whole range of treatments that this technology could lead to. Yeah, and it is very exciting, although, you know, as she said, it's very preliminary and there's still a whole lot of work. I mean, I liked that she, like you said, was very honest and didn't go with our five to ten years <laughs> of when it's going to come to come to market. She didn't fall into our trap there. I really respect that about her. Yeah, and I know. I good. think she was understating it, to be honest, because what you said, I think very incisively, is how long until we could get this into trials in humans. And I, I think there's a chance we might be able to get through the preclinical animal data within five to ten years. I'm hopeful. Uh, yeah. And I, I'm sure a lot of people out there will be hopeful for this as well. But at, least at this point, it's time for us to close out the show. It's, we've come into the end. And so it's time for our stem cell podcast rant. And this rant is our chance to complain about something that really bothers us and that most likely bothers you at least a little bit. So, Dalen, what are we ranting about today? 
Well, you and I were having a conversation before you told yeah. me about a little bit of celebratory news, but it was balanced by just the most frustrating thing. And I think you're going to really carry this off, this uh, rant, bring it, kick it off with the idea of these uh, residual meaningless fees. What is yeah. going on? I don't know what happened. I paid my very last student loan payment yesterday. Congratulations. Thank That's you. Great news. You're going to be rich. I know. I'm going to have money in my pocket, finally. <laughs> but, you know, it's very exciting. But at the same time, I went and I looked at the loan repayment web interface and I'm like, yes, principal balance zero, still owed two cents. Two cents, because in the 24 hours that it took my bank to transfer the freaking payment to the loan company, two cents of interest accrued. That's ridiculous. What? Two cents? I don't want to be on the hook for two cents. And what does that mean on the hook? You should just stiff them. I know, but no, then is take their two cents. I know, but then is are they going to go? Oh nope, you didn't repay your loan. Thirty, sixty, uh, ninety days overdue. Uh, two uh, cents plus interest on two cents plus in. Oh, and a late fee on top of that, and then all of a sudden I'm owing like I'll end up owing like fifty dollars and two cents, and I'll try to pay that off, and it'll be like you owe five cents, you know, <laughs> and these fees and the interest, they never let you pay things off. I want to be done. When great. can I be it's done? Not it's not fair. I maybe there's got to be some lot either. It's just some a-hole over there is not doing his job. Or I think because I'm a real cynic and conspiracy theorist that there's there's got to be some logic to it. They get the two cents. You forget about it. After all, your balance is zero. And then yeah. a month later, where do they get an extra $50 on the penalty? So you know what? Exactly. Screw them in their two cents. Pay them a dollar. <laughs> That's what you do. Yeah. I'd be like, you, you know, Overpay. here's my two cents. That's right. I'll give you my two cents plus some. I'm giving you $100 <laughs> to preempt all the pain in the ass that you're going to be going down the line. And then I'm going to charge them interest for repaying me the amount that I overpaid. Yeah. They don't even let you do that. The time, by the way, that you spend dealing with this has got to be worth more than two cents. I know. And, I mean, the truth of it is, it, is it two cents? Are they going to erase the penny already? Can we just get, get on with it? These cents? Come on. Makes no sense. Makes no sense. Makes no sense at all. And I don't know, all of you out there, if you're still repaying your loans, I hope you don't end up with any cents left over at the end. I hope you had more sense than I did to like actually just pay it out early. I don't know. If you have two cents like <laughs> Kiki, maybe you could offer us your two cents in a rent of your own. Ha ha, you see that? I got you on the you pun. You did it. I have a pun for you, Kiki. How about that? <laughs> more puns, more punny. All right. Send us your rant ideas, Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email us at stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. All right, Dalen, we did it. That concludes episode 79. It's the first episode of the new era. It is. People are already saying it. The post, what is it? The post-Trump era. Uh, the first podcast, episode 79 of the Stem Cell Podcast. It was a good episode. Great interview with Alpa. She was, that was very promising research. Lots of great soothing science news. Yes. A lot of fun, too. So cheerful. I mean, that's the kind yeah. of scientist I love. Not 
too intense. Like they're, you know, staring daggers at you. We had a good run lately. We've had some good guests. Let's hope to keep it going. Episode 80. Moving forward. Tune into it. It'll be soothing too. I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. We'll also have the latest papers. Looking forward to episode 80 next time, Dalen. It'll be good.